So, Mark, if we were doing a podcast, if today, we were I'm doing not, a podcast, would this would be our forty second, third, third, third? It's our forty third season two, number fifteen or something, sixteen. We are cruising. <laughs> we are. It's a, it's a discipline. <laughs> we have to do it. And our guest today is Mr. Tom Kalopoulos. Are we recording, gentlemen? Are we actually? This is the. This, this might be it. This, this, <laughs> this is the most. Now you're seeing the essence of failure. <laughs> and you are Mark. I am. Uh, I am Mark. You, and I am Dave. There. <laughs> no. We had one listener complain. That we didn't identify. Our only listener. They didn't know who we were. Well, your voices are very similar. Yeah. Oh. oh. <laughs> <Good> thing, <Gary. laughs> jump, the Mark. Don't floor. jump. <laughs> what do we hear about today? Well, we're here. Uh, well, first of all, I, the, a yeah, little more Tom? context. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Tom will introduce himself, but oh, yeah. oh, I'll introduce Tom. But he'll. He and I met. Um, we oh, did no. a. We here did we a. Go. No, it's it's not a. No panelizing. It's not a, 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 a an ugly dog story or whatever you want to call it. It's not a oh, not a herd dog story. Herd dog story. <laughs> oh, so you found Tom, him on the street. Tom and I uh, met yeah. because he was kind enough to do a conference with me uh, for JD Power called the Empower IoT West. Are we going to do some pitching? Um, there here? will be an East one. We're not doing any pitching. No pitching. Good. Uh, he was sponsored by Wasabi, which is Ooh, where we're we're recording in Wasabi Studios right now. Oh, Wasabi, where's that? Uh, in what in is Boston. That? It's oh. on the 29th floor. It's a storage device company, right? It, it, no, not no, a device. No, not device. No, it's cloud no, storage. Cloud storage. They're disrupting the cloud storage is there a world. Yes. Oh, on prem versus off prem. But anyway, there we go. So Tom came to my MIT conference. Oh, there's oh. oh. You're the director there, aren't you? I, I'm a director at the MIT Enterprise Forum. Oh, that's of so cool. On the board of directors. Tom, we are in the presence I, of the I am man. feeling very diminutive right now, yeah, I have yeah. to tell you. Well, yeah. you can, the chair goes up. <laughs> um, so in that context, I've met Tom, but Tom has had a, a long and storied career. Arduous. Uh, well, the, our, the only thing that's arduous is probably Tom sitting through this intro. Yes, it's been <laughs> but Tom, would, it's you, would you be kind enough to introduce yourself and a little background and but, all that stuff? But just a little. Well, thank you for, got, for, for we got four hours of tape here. So. <laughs> <laughs> time. Sorry, I've got to start recording now. Here goes. Here's Scott. I'm going to try real hard to keep up with you guys. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to, to pull it off. Um, so yeah, I am a, I'm a, a grizzled veteran, is the way that I that I put it. I've grizzled. been in the industry for about 30 years now. Uh, my company, Delphi Group, is a think tank. Uh, we work out of Boston. We follow leading edge technologies and try to separate the uh, the so truth from the fiction. From the, chaff. the wheat from the chaff. Yeah, there, there you go. go. That's right. That's and, right. And what sort of uh, what sort of consult? wheat and what sort of chaff? Oh, that too. But who do you consult <laughs> our, to? Our, our consulting clients are the, the Global 2000, large organizations that are spending a lot of money on information technology and want to rest assured that they're spending that money in the right way, this that they're spending sounds, it strategically. He sounds like he has pitched a lot. <laughs> I told you, he's got a, a, a voice, voice for radio. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was that line? I've got a bod for... A brain for business and a bod for sin. Whoa. That was a uh, working girl. Is this a I Melanie don't, Griffith? I don't recall I think that. That's line. Willie Nelson. No, 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 no. That's a different Could've, line. Well, okay. Mm, sorry. Um, By the way, I, I, I'm assuming you may be somewhat familiar with our podcast. If, if not, Dave and I interrupt each other and we make very feeble attempts at, at humor. So don't be totally. Yeah, I will. I will go with the flow, gentlemen. Happy to do that. So we can dive right in. Let's get right to failure. Tell us about some failures. Tell you about some failures. How do you like that for like no warm up, no yeah. well, so, he, so no nothing. So look, no here's, the, here's, here's the thing, guys. <laughs> no the, the, 
the, the, the topic of, of failure is one that, that we unfortunately, much to our, to our, to our peril, I think, we, we avoid it. And I think why the, would you do that? Well, because it doesn't speak well of us. Oh. Uh, we want to we want to sort of sidestep it and pretend that we've had nothing but a long string of successes, and that creates a pedigree uh, and Is some authority like to our story. Or LinkedIn? Well, it's exactly like Facebook. Yeah. I mean, we don't want to put our failures out there. So yeah, what yeah, we true. put out there are all the wonderful meals, the great pets, and great kids that we have, mm. Mark, and all why our accomplishments. Do we do this, then? Why uh, do we promote failure? Why do we, you and I do it? Yeah. Because we're stupid. No, we're, <laughs> we're good at it. Ha, <laughs> ha. Uh, but uh, why do we do it? I, look, I think the topic of failure, having failed many times, and I'll admit it, uh, is interesting. And I, I, as I always say, it's really about resilience. How do you persist through failure, either as a pivot or as, a, you know, my next company, I learned A, B, and C from my last company. But that suggests that there's value in persistence, and while there is. So let me, let me, yes. su- let me suggest something that, that might be a little, little anathema. More interesting. Um, perhaps, perhaps, but, but it certainly is, is contrarian in that oh. l- let's, let's say that. Um, Perchance. Perchance, perchance, let's say that failure is actually an essential ingredient to success, that it is not a byproduct of efforts that are otherwise wasted, but an essential ingredient, that without you, failure, you cannot achieve success. You must have listened to this podcast. I, I, you, you know what? Honestly, gentlemen, have I haven't, but I think, but I think we're on the same wavelength. I think yeah. we're on the same wavelength. Well, then get into that further, because that is an important topic. I let have, me actually, let's take it from a different, different perspective. Why is Facebook and now LinkedIn, why are they so popular when all they promote are success and, would you say, puppy dogs and rainbows? Well, because puppy dogs are rainbows, yes, right, and, and what you ate last hey. night. Um, oh, that's true. Look, here's the thing. Facebook gives us a, a canvas on which we can paint ourselves in, in any fashion that we want. Right. And the, the reality is that we'd all like to see ourselves in a glorious fashion. We want to see ourselves as, as successful and, uh, and entertaining and engaging and good parents and good husbands and good wives and good children, whatever. Um, and Facebook gives you that opportunity to do that uh, with unbounded license. But it's artificial. Uh, it, it is not the way the real world works. The reality is that I've yet to talk to anyone who has even a moderate degree of success who has not, um, not just overcome, but, but frankly ignored their failure and just kept on plowing forward. So why does advertising, uh, holy hey, smokes, man. what idiot did not turn off their phone? Ooh, <laughs> me. <laughs> that would be me. Um, so why is hey, it I'm that- more concerned about your ringtone. Oh, <laughs> it's the default one. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> what do you want? It's the default. Why is it then that marketing, you know, if you drive down the pike or you turn on the TV, marketing only shows pretty people um, doing fun and pretty Facebooky like things. Why hasn't marketing ever come around to showing the slogging away, the, the what is it, the nose or the shoulder of the grindstone? Yeah, I mean... It's, it's not, it, look, it's, it's not attractive. It's not what we are drawn to. Um, we are drawn to the mythology of, of what constitutes success and what creates the foundation and the bedrock for success. And success is built on a long, continuous series of efforts that mostly have failed. So there you go. I mean, that, that, that ruined our entire podcast. Mm. Well, our whole you know, season is over. We don't want to buy that. We don't want to buy right. into that, right? We don't want to buy into that. We want to believe that that's not the case. Um, well, what's his face? Warren Buffett. This will seem mm. like a soft point, but I think it's on point. Warren Buffett drives around with that old beater. What is it? Uh, You've heard about it? Like that? an Oldsmobile, yeah. Yeah. It's a I mean, 20 I year old car, yeah. yeah. Right. So, because I guess he doesn't have to prove success. Well, so that part of it is that is having feeling that you have to prove success. I think uh-huh. Facebook definitely feeds that part of our ego, right? Yes. That enables us to prove success without achieving success, oh, right? That, harsh, that, there's a difference harsh, there. There's a difference harsh. there. Achieving success means slogging through all of the crap that you have to slog through to get to that end goal. Um, and I would I would even suggest, and this is going to be complete heresy. I would even suggest that um, 
perhaps the folks who are most successful are the ones who are most oblivious to the embarrassment of failure. Hmm. They, they embarrass the hell out of themselves and they just go right back to it again. Uh, because the goal is so important that it overshadows, it eclipses. They outlive their embarrassment. So I would think, you say that failure is more important than success? I would say that failure is essential. It is not more important than success. It's kind of like saying, you know, is, what's, what's, is day or night more important? You know, you need one to have the other. Hmm. Failure feeds, okay. feeds an engine that ultimately results in, in a success. I had an interview years and years back, many years back. I was in my early 20s and I was interviewing with Oracle at the time. Oh. And uh, Mike Kennedy, one of their VPs, one of the very important people there in the early days of Oracle was interviewing me. He looked at my resume and he said to me, uh, he was my final interview of the day. He said, um, he said, okay, you know, looking at this, have you ever failed at anything? And for once in my life, I came back with a brilliant retort, which oh, I was so no. proud of. My, I didn't get the job, by the way, but it was a brilliant retort. Yeah, yeah. That was I said, a failure. <laughs> I, said, I said, you know what? Yeah. I, I failed at everything up until I succeeded. That's and, great. And, and yeah. when I think about that and analyze... It's the Babe Ruth line, right? Well, when I, when I, it is. When I analyze that 20-year-old, I think I was oblivious to the embarrassment that came with failure. I didn't see it. I just, I, you know, okay, it happened. I'll plow through it. Uh, and just kept on going. No, he did not expect your resume to list the failures, but he wanted to make sure that you were somewhat human. I, well, I don't know what his, what his motive was fundamentally. I couldn't get inside of his head, but I think what he was trying to say to me was, are you real? Yeah. You know, how, how have you gotten to this point? You know, tell me a bit more mm. about the process rather than just the results. Hmm. But we love to focus on results. Results are easy to focus on, right? The, uh, but the, the be, end, the but end in an interview, nobody cares about anything other than outcome or, or results. Well, that's true. You know, sales went from A to B. You know, uh, stock price went from, you know, X to Y, whatever it is. Well, but you said it, Mark. You know, it's, it's, it's the resilience of being able to deal with the, 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 the failures. We love to label stuff as a failure. It's just part of the process. Yeah, it, no, no, it, right. It's it exactly a way we get right. to, an end, to an end game. So how did failure end up having such a negative uh, connotation? <laughs> that's a deeply philosophical question, right? Um, it's a survival mechanism. I think we're wired somewhere in our DNA is this this abhorrence of failure. That if you mm. because look, you know, back in the days of you know the the cavemen and cave women, if you failed, it was fatal. Um, you know, you didn't get to recover. Right. Uh, you didn't have as many years to recover, by the way, right? Yeah. So you look to the ripe old age of 25, 26, 27, you fail once or twice, that's the end of it. <clears throat> Game's have, over at 18 or have 14. Have you given any thought to this topic before we walked in and asked? I have thought about failure as, yeah, as much He's as anyone else. For minutes, for He's minutes. He's killing us. This may be our first 15-minute our first podcast. That is, that is only a testimonial to, <laughs> to, to the fact that I, I think I, I have that inability to, to truly appreciate my embarrassment uh, at, its, at its full potential. So going back to interviews, um, I guess then a good interview, that the one you had with uh, Mike Kennedy or whoever, yeah. may or may not have been a good interview, but it seems to me what you're saying is that a job interview ought to include not just a discussion of the successes that show up on oh, the resume, absolutely. but also the, okay, so I'm assuming that you didn't achieve getting sales from what did you say, A to B? A to B. Uh, you know. The minute you sat down, what did you? What what was the process, and what were the sort of the stumbling blocks along the way? Look, would that you know, be a value or it, no? It, look, I, I, can I can I give you an analogy? I think I think brings it a little bit closer to home because yep. we're, we're getting a little too philosophical about something which doesn't need to be that philosophical. Oh, if, if, oh, if, oh. if I may, he's schooling may. us. We are being schooled. <laughs> well, that's why we're here. <laughs> we we didn't come here for the water. <laughs> True. <laughs> or the view. So the view nice. is very nice. <clears throat> anyone anyone who has um, who's had a health goal to lose weight or to work out or whatever it is, you know, to ride a, a bike. We've got folks here in the, in the office that love to do the Peloton. Um, you don't start at whatever you're currently at. You started somewhere that right. in some way was much inferior 
to to whatever you're able to do right now, whether it's lifting a certain amount of weight or you know bicycling a certain number of miles. You could I, you could claim that every single step along that way was a failure. Yep. Because you weren't at the point that you are right now. Correct. But no one would say I'm a failure who's gone through that process. They'd say, you know, yeah. I've lost 100 pounds. I've, I'm true. able to do, you know, 10 more reps. I'm able to do, you know, this this much more in distance or time or whatever your metric is. Uh, so failure just comes at at, at, a, at, a, at at this point where you say, I'm going to draw the line. If you draw the line too early, it's a failure. You keep on going, uh, you know, it becomes a success. So you're a public speaker. That's Is that actually what you do most of the I, time? I, I do a, a bit of that. That's sort of a byproduct of a lot of other things that I do. I love the public speaking, but it's, it's more of a byproduct. Okay, of what is it that you do? You're a marketing so, guy. So Delph, Delphi Group uh, for 30 years uh, in 2019 has been following hot trends in technology and trying to make sense of them. So we, we talk about ourselves as being a think tank. Um, we How look many at the of you are there? There's only a dozen of us right now. That's a lot. Well, it's for a think tank. It's plenty to keep us, you know, engaged and, and interested and, and bouncing ideas off of each other, which okay. is really critical. Um, so we follow leading edge technologies and make sense of them and, and try to distill them, simplify them in, in a way that um, most people, even a pedestrian, could understand, if you will. Now, how does that compare with not JD Power but um, well, Forrester and all the others? Well, so for uh, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll take the first part. JD Power is a data analytics company, so they crunch numbers and then try and divine questionnaires. Well, well, it's more than that. But, I know, but, I know. but you know, kidding, they, they, they do analytics. Trying to irritate you? Uh, nothing irritates me. I'm oh, not one of the on. uh, data scientists. Somebody just scratched your new car. That, that would irritate, irritate me. Okay, there we go. That would irritate me to no okay. end. Okay. Um, I now I now anally look at all of the. Uh, the, the surfaces of the car. I just came back from Atlanta, as I mentioned, and I'm, I'm in the airport like with a flashlight making sure. <laughs> keep the, going. Now, anyway, um, so yeah, so Jay Power tries to, you know, discern sort of the nugget of gold from the bucket of crap that might be a big pile of data. So, right. Uh, right. Or, or more elegantly would be, uh, you know, find the signal within all the noise, yeah. uh, which is a very trendy thing to say. Mm. Uh, Forrester, you know, they do actual... Um, market research, so uh, quantitative and qualitative, and they do a lot of interviewing of executives, and then they formulate points of view. And you may do aspects of that. We and do it, some of it, but not not on as broad a basis. Right. So they cover a lot of territory. That's right. They, and, and they they publish a lot of reports. So they do a lot largely on spec, and they wait for people. Some to things buy on in. spec, and then you know they have a mandate to go meet with certain kinds of executives in certain vertical markets. They, they have to speak at a certain number of conferences. Right. They produce a conference or two. And we had a guest from that yeah, was Forrester, uh, our wasn't friend it? Frank Gillette. Yeah, that's Frank, right. Twice. Um, twice. Twice, actually. Twice. And he's More active with me at MIT. Did I mention I was on the board oh, of that's <laughs> right. the MIT Enterprise well, just like, Forum? Ooh, ah. Okay. Sorry, this is part of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the the, the, the <laughs> remaining listener is already. No, she's, she or he has already left the room. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. They're, they're getting uh, a sandwich. Exactly. Um, okay, so, uh, so, but yeah, so that's, that's where the difference is. But the thing I was going to say is, you know, the notion of failure and failing fast is sort of baked into a lot of you know the MVP type sure books. Sure, it is absolutely. And I'm sure absolutely. you know uh, when you go into a, a large company, you might say, if you're going to try this, great, but you know get it done with quickly if it if it's if it's a loser. But spe- but speed is relative to the organization. There are some organizations that have a, a much uh, greater appetite for longer term experiments, if you will. I won't even call them right. failures than than do others. And that all comes down to leadership. If leadership has 
given you license to fail, they should at least be kind enough to give you the parameters in which you can fail. Right. So can I, is it a three-month experiment? Can I do a 12-month experiment? Is it a 24-month experiment? And I think the failing of leadership often when it, when it comes to failure, the failing of leadership is that they don't define what those parameters are. You know, here's the license. Here's, here's the sandbox. Here's how big it is. Right. You know, here's what you can spend. Here's how much time you can take. And a certain amount of that has to be baked into our budget so that we can, in fact, be the ones who obsolesce ourselves, who innovate, who do all the cool things that someone else might do to us if we don't do it first. So, and again, I don't know if this is part of the consultancy, but I remember very briefly when I was at Polaroid, um, they had this aspect of, you know, certain engineering managers had license to go create sort of a skunk works right. of their own. I have right. an idea. They'll go to their manager, and, and there was a process. You know, I have this idea. I want to build a new widget. Yeah. Great. What's the widget need to do? You know, all right, I want if the manager approves, you get X percent of your time that you can do this. I think Google does this. I think other places do this. Yeah, do it's, you, it's very popular in high tech, yeah. especially. Uh, and, you know, Polaroid was doing it 30 years ago. Yeah. So, you know, as part of your uh, consulting, your team's consulting work, might you uh, note that for a client, like, you know, create, a, create an environment, or have you seen that uh, successfully, successfully deployed? So I've got an interesting point of view on that one. This is a question that comes up very frequently. Uh, and it's not a popular point of view, by the way. And, and the point of view is very simply that if that wasn't baked into your culture from the outset, good luck trying to bake it in afterwards. It's okay. kind of like, you know, taking... Um, uh, the culture becomes such a powerful governing force, and it becomes the rules and the regulations and the policy, the unwritten policy by which we, we run our organization. So right. if that hasn't been baked into it from the very outset, it is so difficult to then put that back into, retrofit it into a culture. So what you're saying, the permission to fail Absolutely. has to be baked in. The permission to fail and the parameters and the examples of how we have failed. You know, Why is failure successful? Why, why is it a good thing to do? Why are these experiments worthwhile? And if I can show a track record of examples where that has led to something else, you know, the 3M example of Post-it Notes is that's the one exactly, that has become almost religious, yeah. right? We all, we all know that one. So uh, if I don't show how we've used failures in the past to lead us to success, I'm not advertising that to my people. They won't know. They, they don't have any clue that they have license to fail. I won't mention names here, but I, I do recall working with a multi-billion dollar organization once where the CEO gathered all the senior execs, uh, and we were there as, as, as advisors, and uh, it was a whole day on innovation, why we should be more innovative. Great day. Everyone right. was pumped. At the end of the day, the CEO got up and said, now, I just want you all to remember something as the leaders of this organization, that we have an unlimited downside and a limited upside. And I thought, oh, shit, really? Yeah. That's how you're going to end the day? Mm. I mean, how innovative are you going to be walking out of that meeting? Right. What you basically said as a leader of leaders is we have no room to fail. Right. No room to fail whatsoever. Um, but we have a lot of room to, you know, to, to, to uh, very, sorry, take that back. We have little room to succeed, but a lot of room to fail. So what is the, what is the, how does that play out in, because we mostly talk to folks about startups. Right. And where the concept of minimal viable product, MVP, yeah. seems to work because they have no reputation early on to keep up. Um, but a company like 3M, when they came out with a post-it note, yeah. did have a reputation. They, they did at that point. It. They didn't when they came out with with, uh, with masking tape, which was much earlier in their okay, career. Yeah, that would have been right? I and that in the was, 30s or 40s. But that was a that was yes, that was a great example of how you know the first engineer they hired, who had a, I think a correspondence degree, by the way, uh, who came out with masking tape, was constantly told by his uh, his superior, "Don't focus on that. Uh, that's adhesives is not what we do. You know, we get, we do abrasives. Focus on abrasives." Right. So, you know, from there evolved this sort of folklore culture of give people some amount of time, 10, 20 percent, 
to experiment and to fail, if you will, a protected space, a sandbox within, within which to, to fail. But acknowledge that that failure has benefit, that there is upside to it. Unlike my CEO that I was just talking about, there's, there's a huge upside to failure. It's not just downside. So take this to the, a practical level. That is, let's take it to, say, the uh, Post-it note, which I think came out in the what, late 70s or exactly. 80s. No, it was the 80s. No, it was much later. It was, much it was later. the 80s. It was, it was the 1980s. You and I were working when those came out, right? Well. That's well, questionable. Well, yeah. you, you still aren't working. But okay. So so I think there's a few phases. So number one, a startup can afford to push into the marketplace a minimum viable product because it has no reputation. Right. 3M probably by the 80s couldn't afford to put out crap. So how does a larger organization... Uh, number one, we clearly they have time to do internal testing, and they probably need to do it. So the minimum viable product is circulated internally only, right. like Apple distributing the early iPhones yes. and occasionally leaving them at the bar. Right. Um, as they're, when they're employees well, that's do that. Just, that's like a personal failure. I don't even, that's just... The but the point is, is that he was trying one internally, and they, they get feedback. How right. does a large corporation, the ones you tend to deal with, how do they, how do they handle the practicality of where is the alpha testing yep. begin, where is the yep. beta testing? So, so again, an unpopular answer, most of them don't. Most of them can't do that. They it's must. A, it's extro- well, hold on. Most of them don't. I didn't say some of, all of them don't, but most of them don't. What do they do? Well, the, the ones that do do it well, one of three things is happening. They've either got a track record, which is, which is the way 3M does. They've got a track record and a metric by which they, they actually measure the amount of failure and experimentation. So it's an amount of that budgeted into the process. So with 3M, I think this is still the case, by the way. With HP, this was the case. It no longer is at HP. 30% of the revenue had to come from products and reduced in the last three to five years, okay. I believe it was. So that's okay. a metric. If you track that over time, over decades, and you see that metric going off, and 3M had some real tough times uh, going back about 10, 15 years, yep. and it was that metric was way off. Um, so you, you can look at that metric and say, you know what, we're not keeping pace with, if you will, That's quote, a different unquote. issue, though, is it not? That, to me, is then a what? result. The rev- is if, As I understand what you said, a third, of the, a third or half the revenue needs to come from products recently introduced. Correct. That, I'll argue, is not orthogonal to, but is a byproduct of a healthy developmental process. The developmental Agreed. process needs to have R&D for sort of basic research that the company does. It has to, when it's identified things that products that look like they have a potential future, right. you now need to pump more budget into that, which is, hey, so-and-so is working on these funny little yellow things that seem to stick without sticking too much. Yep. Um, we could see some value in them. Um, let's up her budget for another year. But all that's the internal sort of internal process on R&D. Eventually, it turns into an internal alpha testing process, process where you now say, hey, we have these little yellow things. Put them on your screen and see if they rip the, sure. rip the, the material off or put them on your wall. At some point, then you go to beta. And I guess my real interest is, and what you're getting at, by the way, is once that pro- a healthy process of product development is completed, yeah. then you say to yourselves, oh, good, this is our next big hit, we hope. Now let's see if whether, whether they'll eat the dog food, whether the market will eat the dog food. Right. So there is, so I'm, I'm, I guess what I'm getting at is by focusing on that metric that you focused on, you didn't, ad- well, you didn't address what I'm interested in, which is what's a healthy process look like inside a large company that has a well-developed reputation? What's a healthy process look like for R&D internal testing and then beta testing. That's the longest question I think I've ever heard. Yes, but if it made sense, we'll see if that makes sense. (laughs) It actually, so, so, uh, so let's let's work with this let's a little bit because yeah, let's work with this a little bit yep. because it actually steps outside of R and D. I think one of the one of the yeah. worst things you can do is to so I'll give you an example. This is an Intel example. It's been written about pretty widely and it goes back some years. Um, Intel had a budgeting process by which they would allocate 
um, budget to new ideas, new innovations, new experiments, based on how successful the current platform that innovation was going to enable was. Yeah. Well, what if you didn't have a platform? What if okay. it was a completely different innovation? Well, right? Where would you get the budget? So you've got to be able to step outside of R&D. Okay, so, so what I call that, if you look at companies that do this well, Partners Healthcare here in Boston, a yep. uh, coalition of many hospitals, they've got a, uh, an incubator um, that, that looks specifically at monetizing new ideas, new innovations. Correct. Right? Um, and uh, that incubator, by the way, started with two people. It now has well over 200 people, I think. It accounts for, I don't know how many, hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue every year for, for partners for the partners ecosystem. What happened there was they built an innovation zone. And that innovation zone is, is accessible to anyone across the entire organization. If you have yep. an idea, if you're a doc, a clinician, a nurse, it could be a janitor, it doesn't matter yep. who you are. Yep. If you have an idea, you go to the RVC. It's a, it's a research-based organization that operates independently within Partners Healthcare, you go to them and you say, I've got an idea. I don't have time to, to bake this. You know, could you do something with it? They'll look at it. They'll look at patents, uh, yeah. whether it is patentable. They'll look at how they might be able to raise venture for it. They have their own private venture fund. Yeah. They could invest in it. How many companies have an innovation zone of that sort? Very, very few. Very few. And it's not, it's not R&D specific. This cuts across the entire organization. So to answer your question directly, if you don't have an innovation zone, the only other way through which you can innovate your way out of wherever your current product set is or service offering is, is a direct nuclear hit. Okay, so let me <laughs> let me advance the question then. Say say the basic R&D is done, whether through an innovation zone or otherwise, right. and you a company believes this product or potential product has legs. Um, and again, I'm going to focus on the post-it note. It seems useful. People like writing things on it. It sticks to the wall. It sticks to the screen. All those things it seems to do well. We don't know if there's a market out there, but we don't want to put now another 100, not 100 million, we don't want to put right. another 50 million into perfecting the paper so all pencils work, but we yep. want to get it out in the marketplace. So a startup can afford to get an MVP out there because they have no reputation. Absolutely. Where does that occur? License the, the damn thing. License. What P&G did with, with the majority of its patents you know, about 10, 15 years ago. You know, they, they looked at all, the, all their patents they were holding on to and doing nothing with, right? Yep. Why? Because they might threaten an existing product, an existing revenue stream, we're not quite ready to go, we don't have an MVP that we're comfortable with as a big organization. So license the damn thing, go elsewhere. It, it requires looking at your at your business as more of an ecosystem than a company. Mark, do you follow my question? Which one? Uh, the latter one, which is how, the does the, was how does the large corporation, we tried to get into this with uh, J.D. Power also, yeah. how does the large enterprise, what's the large enterprise's equivalent of the MVP? How does beta testing occur so at a large the, enterprise? The, uh, the, the technical organizations I've been affiliated with, I'll use Polaroid as an example before I spun out the thing from there. I have a product. It still hasn't paid its bill? Oh, no, they did. Oh. Um, <laughs> I think. Who knows? Probably not. T talk to the CEO. Inside joke. Talk to the CEO. CEO. That uh, was a loser. He's a failure. But anyway, that's <laughs> me. There you go. Uh, a potential guest for your show. Yeah, I was guest number he one. He was number one. And, then yeah. I ended up, and the prize was I ended up with the podcast. <laughs> Now I can't get rid of the goddamn thing. But, um, so okay. uh, large organizations have a product uh, uh, development process that you know they have stage gates and all that. It's a very formal process. Is that like swim lanes? Uh, no, it's not quite like, like that. But you know, there's a a process. Have an idea, you know, do a, a quick snapshot, market okay. research test, validate the idea, come back, you know, put together a budget. So there's like stage gates that you go through, and at every uh, gate. 
there's a review, and if the review, I'm sorry to yell, if the review, um, he, we wouldn't listen to you anyway. Exactly. <laughs> if if the review point is a failure, you either it's you know go or no go. Okay, so now jump ahead to Polaroid. Imagine at some point there was a yellow sticky thing that was kind of a little too sticky or not sticky enough. You couldn't write on it with pen, but you could do it with pencil. Right. Do they at some point introduce that to the marketplace? Yes. And do they have market study? How does but that market study work? They they had formal market research oh. folks. I actually knew the market research So you're bringing people? So they, they would do a focus group. They'd say, oh. uh, and I'll give you an example. They had something called the, um, I think it was called the I-Zone, the letter I-Zone. Mm. It was marketed as a, a, a thin, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm doing this for my radio listeners. I'm holding my fingers up about an inch uh, across. There was and a, you're able was to like, speak at the same exactly. time. That's it's, amazing. It's a, it is marvelous. Yeah. It was a thin instant uh, photo. It was very small. It was, um, I was going to say it's the size of a 35 millimeter uh, negative, Ooh, but no one yeah. will know what that is no. anymore. No. Uh, Sadly, was, the three of us do. It was a cheap camera. Yeah. It was targeted at kids, had kid, kid-like graphics. Mm-hmm. Somebody had an idea that let's do a very fast, inexpensive you know, kid-focused, you know, toy Polaroid camera. But this is before the real Polaroid. The, well, well, this is, no, this is one, was, one of their products. Oh, this was, I see. This yeah, was yeah. well after. This yeah, was, this okay. was one of their last One, one of their oh, last products. I, I have right. a bunch okay. in my basement. That's right. Yeah. So what, what do they do? An engineer had an idea. I can get this kind of film in this kind uh, of package. We want to go after the kid market. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So what they did is they put it through the stage gate. They, yep. There's a, uh, actually our podcast number two with Dr. Sam Leggero Ooh. talked a little bit about that. That's it was right, one of our best ones. So uh, I would refer. But this one will be better. Up of course. until now. Up yeah. Until yeah now. This one's great. Exactly. Yeah, but this one's the best. So, the best. But they the one went, we've done they today. went through a process. So companies have a, have an innovation and development process ah. that at each stage gate, it, it there's a, a go or no go. Right. Yeah. Or you know go back to stage one, come back and and at a certain point the manager says you know what we've gone through three stage uh, three gates. You're not. It's just not going to happen. Let's call it here. So here's. So I'm going to submit something, which I'd love to get your feedback on, because you've seen the stage gate process right. as it was, the focus group approach to that to that mm. process. Focus groups are going away. Um, per not, Steve Jobs. Not not everywhere, but well, per Steve. Well, there's two ways focus groups right. go away. I know better what the market which is well, not issue. what it wants. That's, that's, that's separate. Issue. That's separate. Yeah, what right. I want to focus on is the ability now through device-based innovation to capture true behavior, not to ask about the behavior. Oh, so to instrument to, it. Through, through sensors, right, in the device to see what actually is happening. I happen so the, to be in that business. I, I know well, a little but, bit about that. So the best, well, <laughs> oh, IoT no. is what you do. I mean, so, right. Which is why I wanted to bring it up. I, so I think what's happening is we're, we're creating these sort of real-time focus groups where because I'm in your automobile, that's my platform, you know exactly what I'm doing, you know so, how I'm doing it, better than I could ever describe it to you because my bias is going to change my behavior by the time right. I actually tell you what my behavior is. So let, let me, but let that me, sensor yeah. knows the behavior. So let's take it away from the J.D. Power aspect for a yeah. second. That J.D. Power has a program called Voice of the Vehicle where they look at behavior inside the vehicle. And it could be driver behavior like right. fast braking. And, and also the insurance companies have had this for a long time. That's right. Uh, where you know they have a device that goes underneath yep. the dash called an OBD2 thing, and I won't get into the technicalities of it, but People have seen progressives advertising this on... And that's how they do it. So they, they encourage safe uh, safe driving, and they discourage unsafe driving, right. and then they come up with a way to rate your, your driving behavior based on time of day. Yep. You know, are you speeding? Are you, you know, uh, braking really hard? Blah, 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 blah. Um, but you look at a company like Tesla, where the whole car is a mobile terminal, exactly. effectively, uh, and I just bought one, just not, not to bring scorn upon myself uh, uh, through the two listeners, but I just bought the, uh, a Model 3, and they can tell exactly what you're doing, mm-hmm. and the, the car does, you know, is smart enough to kind of predict a few things mm-hmm. for me, 
for example, I was pulling into the skinny t uh, parking space just to come here, and it's binging at me from the front and the and the right because I was kind of close. And it, even that, just to encourage me to park properly, mm -hmm. is is a great oh, use of that's sensors. The car I scratched on the way in. Uh, that was me. <laughs> I, I've I've got it. Uh, um, oh, you have that mode I, on. I've got well, I do have sentry mode on, but um, I I actually have it like a tugboat that's surrounded by. By uh, those, by that that Ferrari I saw down yeah. there. Yeah, <laughs> oh you know God. it's surrounded by sandbags right now. <laughs> so how do but, you? But but to Tom's point, I'm yeah. going to interrupt you. To Tom's point, I mean, a Unusual. lot of companies are are instrumenting things, and they've been doing it for a while, even with uh, computer software, where That's right. they might have uh, you know almost VR goggles that what, what's what's the user looking at? Where am I using? But the usability testing does a lot of that, where. They might, um, I'm again, gesturing to a monitor that's in the room, have cameras all over to see what's the guy looking at. Yes. What's, is there no equivalent in a large corporation to an MVP, a minimum viable product? I think they, every large corporation, and Tom's the expert on large corporations, but every large corporation has or should have an innovation process. Okay, Whether how about a minimum MVP, viable product? As I understand it, which is a product that goes out that into the wild. It was a that came out a couple of years ago. It okay. became really trendy. Okay, is they, the large, they, large they, organizations they do, have those? They do. Until you, they, they do. But not, not necessarily explicitly. Ah. Right? So someone's calling the shots in terms yeah. of is this minimally viable? Yeah. Not every organization has a, a play sheet by which they can make that assessment. But someone is making that assessment at the end of the day. However, going to what I think is the heart of your question, for a startup, yes. there's much more latitude and license to introduce something that isn't necessarily at that same level of viability. And that's because they have no reputation anyway. There's no risk. The, the risk okay. the, well, there's, there's some risk, of course, but the, the risk is not as pronounced as it is for a large organization. There's brand equity risk. Right. There are risks that you cannot recover from ah, easily as a large okay. organization. As a small organization, you know, I'm building my brand. I, I'll have time to recover. And by the way, we do socially give much more latitude to failure in, in the case of a startup than we do with a, an established brand. I think that's really true. That's okay, really how about really the true. iPhone 1, which, as I recall, the very first iPhone, wasn't the first iPhone or the first i not iPad, the first iPhone or the iPod, I guess. The first yeah. iPhone, as I recall, was not much better than an iPod. It was an iPod with a radio yeah. in it. Yeah, yeah, with a phone radio in it. Which, but in retrospect, actual, was awful. The, the very first iteration of that was actually a joint development with Motorola, oh. where they had um, uh, the iPod software inside uh, one of the Motorola models. Oh, really? Right? Right. And it was a limited experiment, ah. and basically... When you talk to uh, Motorolans from that era, and yeah. I know quite a few. Motorolans? Motorolans. Those like Michiganders? <laughs> it is. In fact, some of them are Michiganders. Um, but when you talk to Motorolans from that era, they said, that, you know, we basically taught Apple yeah. the phone business. Oh. And they, what was it the, called? Uh, I forget. It was not the Razor, but there was a... There was a, it may have been a Razor model or there was a MicroTAC model or something. So my understanding was that it was not, it was not in the market. But uh, I could, I, I know could it be came wrong. Out. It, it came out for, it really? was not immensely popular. Okay. But, you know, for Motorola, they thought, well, there's a lot of marketing sheen to doing a deal with, with Apple. For Apple, it was, it turned out, again, yeah. if you take the view of these folks that I'm referencing, these unnamed folks, it was, we taught Apple the phone business, and, right. then, they, and then they they disrupted which, us. Which may very well be the case, but I would also say that Apple had something which Motorola didn't, which is it had a religion. Um, yes. You know, Motorola had brand loyalty, yeah. but Apple had a religion. And the religious would give Apple a pass. Uh, they would say, you know what, this is part of what you do. You're a great innovator. You'll get it right. We know you'll get it right eventually. You ah. screwed up this time around. But I think, we'll, that, I think that's, that's, that's actually very well put. 
Because okay. if, you, if you look at, I mean, I have probably every Apple product. I have an Apple Newton somewhere in my right. attic, which I thought was awful, but it was very cool. Hmm. You know, the, the handwriting well, rifle. Those too. Yeah. Well, yeah. We, yeah. the battery was bad. The yeah. handwriting was either... Difficult. Either, yeah, it just... You know, it's just like even the first voice rack, you know, uh, version of Siri was, yeah. you know, like I have my uh, friend of mine who has a thick New York accent, you know, my friend Art. He's like, oh, I got to get rid of this thing. It doesn't understand a thing I'm saying. Don't, but, but Alexa Alexa would understand that. So don't get me yes. started on Siri. Yes, there correct. is a fundamental yeah. flaw. But, but yeah. he was also yeah, yeah. reacting Siri, to Rev yeah, 1. I understand. And it was, uh, uh, I forget whose voice recognition engine was underneath right. Apple. He may be our only listener, though, so don't say anything no, he's, else he's, about uh, him. He's... he's uh, He's probably not listening. <laughs> if he is, hey, Art. Um, <laughs> okay. No, I'm going to call him and make him listen, doubling okay. our listenership. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, but, uh, so your so point is that your, the point is that large companies can afford to put out a minimal viable product, and we tolerate it with Apple, but we might not tolerate it with... GM. Okay. Think about GM, I think. That's probably a good... You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're all of them... In fact, I heard an NPR piece on how all the car companies are setting up something in Silicon Valley. Right. The German, it was specifically even, today even the German P- ones. Even Peterbilt has a dedicated Peterbilt. facility oh. right there. In, I mean, I, when I found out about that, I said, you know what, everyone's trying to get a piece of the action. Exactly. And you wouldn't think of Peterbilt yeah, as being an maker. IoT company. Right. Well, uh, yeah. They've got, they've got level four, borderline level five technology. Their trucks can go pretty much anywhere right now. They're deciding not to for the time being, for reasons that we could get into. Yeah, but nobody wants but to be the first. Exactly. That's exactly well, I can yeah. imagine. That's exactly Let Let, let uh, Tesla be the first. So like, going back to Tesla, so on Tesla, how that first product they came out with, actually, which was the model what? Well, they, it was S? a Roadster. It was a Roadster. The Roadster, that's right. And it was a Roadster, how, the one that, that he launched into space. So that must have been a, oh, really, okay. No, that went through quite a bit of testing before it was delivered to well, the public. Well, it was also an exotic at that point. Okay. So it was... I, yeah. I call it a proof of concept, but it was really an exotic. I forget how much it was. And you could buy selling it? for. Oh, if you had well, a couple hundred thousand or hundred and twenty-five. But it was fringe. Or, it, was, it was definitely a fringe. It was definitely. Yeah. A- a- Apple. Apple has done. I think we have to be careful when we talk about these case studies. Uh, not to create role models that are simply not replicatable ah, easily. Good. By most a- companies. A- Apple, by most companies. Okay. A- everyone wants to replicate you know, Google's model of giving you 20% of your time. To, but look, if I'm a Google employee, 24-7 of my time is spent on Google. That's yeah, so right. giving me 20% versus 10% as opposed to being a GM that employee mean, that, where That means work I'm working 36 hours, hours right, a day. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. exactly. Okay. Um, so I think we have to be very careful. Right. We, we hold out these role models as though they are, I want a culture of innovation the way Apple does. You know what? Apple doesn't think about its culture of innovation. It's so baked into the organization hmm. that it doesn't have a program to train you on how to be innovative. It's part yeah. of what you absorb by being part of the culture. So how does, I, I think, you know, everybody wants to be Apple. Everybody wants to of be course. the cool company. Of course. Obviously, we're sitting here at Wasabi. Wasabi is uh, an innovator and a disruptor, and the, uh, the co-founders, you know, have started, what, this is their seventh major startup. So this, this is a great example, actually, of a lot of what we've been talking about. But Wasabi is stepping into a, a, an arena where there are many established players, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, that uh, by many metrics, if you talk to most people on the street, if you will, would say, sure, they own the cloud right now. They are the data centers. They are where my data and my, and my apps are, are, are hosted. And there's no room. It's a mature industry. There's no room for disruption there. But that's exactly what Apple stepped into. Apple, st- with the iPhone, yeah, the phone, with the iPod, yeah. they stepped into, into very mature markets. Correct. Uh, uh, and they disrupted them radically, much to right. the, the dismay of the people that were playing in those spaces. I, I've got video clips of Bomber that I used to show sometimes, talking, you know, lambasting uh, Apple for stepping into the uh, uh, the phone space, the smartphone space. So the incumbents are always taken by by surprise here. And the reason is simple, and I think it's, it's, it's important to understand this in terms of what constitutes viability of any product. 
Because the value axis that we use to measure viability does change sometimes. Well, let's actually look at Wasabi. So Wasabi is a storage in the cloud company right. going up against um, uh, some established players. And as I understand Wasabi, and I've invested a little in them, um, from from the the ads I see on the street or pictures of sure. ads I see, they're they're um, selling on price. But there must be much much more to that because Apple did not break into the phone it, market on price. I, I would say their the value other way prop is faster, better, cheaper. Well, I'd, 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 uh, there must be much more to it. There must there, be innovation. There's, so, so faster, better, cheaper definitely is, is is part of the value proposition. But there's innovation in the technology, and there's also something, something much more important here, which which goes back to I think a phenomenon that we've seen many times in other technology spaces, and 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 Apple and iPhones is probably a, a good example as well. Is they're creating an alternative to platforms that sort of hold you hostage. The cool thing about Apple and the iPhone yep. was that I now had this blank slate and I could do anything with it to personalize it for, for me. It became Correct. my phone, right? And your phone with your apps wasn't the phone yep. that I'd want to use and you yep. wouldn't want to use. Agreed. So it created a whole new category. Now I measured that phone based on its ability to, to be personalized to, 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 me. to my so needs. Okay, okay, but how does that exactly. bring that over to Wasabi? So, so what Wasabi is doing is saying, you know, look, you're being held hostage by Amazon, by Microsoft, by Google. You bring your compute to the cloud, you bring your data storage to the cloud, you bring your platform and your network to the cloud. They own it all, but you're not getting best of breed. The reality is you're paying a premium for things that you should be getting in, in a best-of-breed offering. The truly so Wasabi would argue you don't need to do your compute here. You can do it elsewhere. We right. will do storage only, and we'll do it cheaper, exactly. better, and faster. And, and doesn't that promote, over time, a higher level of innovation? And I would say in a free market, yes, it always does. Hmm. So is there going to be a Wasabi of, of computing? That is, There's no is, doubt that the, the market is going to sort of disaggregate. Yeah. Uh, and So Amazon's not going to go away. Microsoft and Google aren't going to go away. That's not what I'm proposing. What we'll see is best-of-breed offerings that, that emerge, some by industry, that are, are ideal for certain industries, entertainment, film perhaps. Um, and, there, uh, and there are compute and cloud, in the cloud companies. Already. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, uh, and, and we're that before, are better, faster, and cheaper? I, I can't speak to that, but I know they exist. Okay. And Well, how did Microsoft, which was, it uh, wasn't Microsoft, with, how do you pronounce it, Azure? Wasn't Azure. It, right. Azure. Azure. Wasn't Azure it late color. to the game? Wasn't yeah. it late to the game? And they seem like they're doing okay. Microsoft is usually late to the game, though. Okay, but they, how did they this pull was a pivot. off? They have market share, don't they? They absolutely do. And you hear about them all the time. So how, given that Amazon was out there, did Microsoft pull that off? So here's what's going on. So look, now we have to dive a little deeper into the cloud, so to speak, right? Part of what's going on with the cloud right now. There must be an oxymoron there. We, yeah. There, there yeah. is. I, was, I wasn't going to try to contrive it too far, but yeah, there is somewhere. Mark is working on it. Just give him about 10 minutes. <laughs> come, come back to us, yeah, when you've got that one figured out. Um, I've got he, one foot out the window right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We kind of have our head in the clouds here on the, on the uh, 29th floor. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, keep going. Yeah, keep going. Uh, where the hell was I to keep uh, going? Uh, Azure. Azure. And how they broke into a well-established industry. Right. So so Microsoft is, is typically a little late to the game, yep. but that doesn't... That so doesn't, is Apple. Well, Apple, depending on where you start the game, yes, yeah, I, would agree, I would agree with you there as yeah. well, right? right. Um, but, but here's what's happening right now. There is an element of, of, of trust and security that buyers of cloud technology are looking for, and they're paying a premium for that. So it's the IBM decision yeah. of the, you know, the 1980s, if you will. Um, so you pay a, a very steep premium, by the way, but worse yet, you lock yourself into that platform. You can't go anywhere else. Once you put your data in that cloud, it is cost prohibitive to take it, it out and put like it anywhere else. It's like a Roach Motel. It checks it's, in, but it doesn't want to, you don't exactly. want to check out. So, but, an 80s but, reference. But, yes, but here, here's, where, here, here's where we, we, we don't see the full picture. Um, right now, about 10%, depending on, on whose numbers you use, 10 to 20%, 
of, of, of organizations actually put their data in the cloud. It's on-premises that, that's the real issue. Most companies are investing heavily in on-premises technology to store this stuff. It'll be like investing in a power plant to run, you know, to run your company in, right. in the early 1900s, right? Eventually, you get to the point where you realize, I don't need to run my power plant. I've got better things to do. I've got products and services to deliver. Let someone else deal with, deal with that. Yep. So why not just be able to offload your data onto someone else? And maybe you want to keep your compute because that's part of your innovation proposition. That's how you, you know, your So how did Microsoft do it? Microsoft did it primarily because <laughs> you're a great because, politician. No, 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 no. But I, yeah. I, 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 I apologize. I answered the question, but I, I didn't. I, I moved I'm too on. Slow. I, I moved on. I'm I slow. moved on too quickly. No, I moved on too quickly. Um, Mark's not raising his unibrow yet. So here's here's, here's how <laughs> Microsoft did it the same the same way that Amazon is doing it right now. The ah. promise of a complete platform. You know, ah, we, we've right. been here. We've been here for a long time. We have this offering. Yeah, maybe it's not best of breed. Yeah, okay, maybe you're going to pay a bit more for it than you need to. But you know, you know us. You know, we've been a vendor. How much for was a long it tied time. in? to Office 365, not at all? That uh, is Office 365 was, was an ancillary sort of byproduct. Okay, so that did not cloud. bring customers over. Did it drive it? Different, different product family. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But by the way, I have to, and this is unplanned, um, uh -oh. I have to give Tom a little further oh, a pitch? reference, a uh, if you will. Uh, he's the author of, I think, 11 or 12 books, 12 as I books. recall. Yeah, just one, one of them is called, the most recent one is The Bottomless Cloud. Right. This is unplanned. Oh. So I, I, I just want to kind of say that, you know, when Tom... Uh, kind of talks about this. He, he actually has a degree of authority on on this matter. So I, had, I, so I forgot to tell you that, but yeah. Well, so what drew me to this? I feel what, much better. But look, it, it's, it's 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 worth <laughs> mentioning. By the way, what, what drew me to to uh, to Wasabi was their founder. Uh, you know, uh, David had actually this is his his seventh or eighth company, depending on how you count him. He and his 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 partner Jeff had had done seven very successful startups. The last one, however, was the one that really caught my eye. Which one Carbonite. Was that? Oh, Carbonite. Carbonite yeah. Right? yeah. So when I when I saw that that uh, that David was coming, that started Wasabi. It caught my eye yeah. uh, because now he was doing in the enterprise what he had done was my yep. assumption what he had done to consumer backup and and storage. And as I began to talk to him, it became obvious that there was some serious need of disruption in the enterprise space. Yep. Okay, okay, all right. Um, and going back to the beta side of it, I guess he, to the extent you know about how he rolled this out and introduced the product, this company though Carbonite had a name and David Friend had a name, right. Wasabi did not. And so he was right. able to introduce a product in the more normal way of a startup. That's absolutely true. And he yeah. had the freedom to do that because they were only focused on one offering. Okay. We'll talk about swim lanes. This is a very skinny pool. Oh. Uh, it's very deep, though, but, you know, they're right. just, I don't, I can't. Uh, what do does that analogies. even mean? I don't know, but it sounded it, really, it well, but you know what, really cool. it's a great metaphor, though. <laughs> it is, it is really skinny. They do, they do one thing and they do it really, really, really well. Right. And, that's, and that's, and that's the depth. And to create that level of depth, there are things they do at a technology level that are just, they're mind blowing. So I'll give you an but example. But does that matter to anyone? Well, it does. Okay. I'll tell you why. why? So yeah. let's say you buy a, a disc and that disc stores a hundred terabytes. Yeah. Of that disc. What do you think you're using when you max it out for storage? What do you think you're using for the most part? Oh, I know the answer 30%. to this one. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, ten percent. You, about half of the disc is what you'd be using. Okay. About half of it. Um, if you close. if you if you maxed it out, if everything was was you know was was exactly as it should be, you might be able to get to seventy percent if you're really right. really lucky. Right. But a lot of that disc is just being wasted. The technology that Wasabi uses m maximizes the storage on the disc, the physical disc yes. space. So it uses 90 percent. So of why that, does that, that matter disc. to me as a customer? Because it costs you a hell of a lot less okay. for that same. Faster, better, cheaper. Right. Oh, exactly. I see. Do you think we can increase our listenership by, by putting this out as an ad for Wasabi? <laughs> 
That's a really good question, but, but that's not what we're trying to do. Oh, but it's, a, but interestingly, you know, we we had asked uh, David, the CEO, if he'd like to be on. Oh, failure has, the podcast. If he has any sense? And, the and then he says, no. "I've had no, I've had no failures, so I, I've got nothing to say." <laughs> well, wait a minute. He has had seven or eight startups, and I gather one of them failed. Yeah, but you know, in this in this context, I don't think he, he wants to talk about anything other than Wasabi. Okay, but um, I, I guess you know. I, I don't know where we are in time, but um, as you look at sort of your consulting portfolio, past, present, again, without naming names or oh, inferring too Name broadly. Um, oh, are we being kicked out? Oh. I was doing a webinar once and a fire alarm that went off and I, refu alarm. I refused to move. That is the fire alarm. I've never seen it go off in this yeah. building before. Well, that okay. might be the failure of this podcast then. Well, Let's see no, if we have to actually over. leave. That's okay. They're going to let us burn up. Keep going. Well, we're on the 29th you floor. Floor, I'll lose you 14 pounds going I'll, down the. Uh, you go first, and we'll follow you. <laughs> exactly. Hopefully, it'll be a good so, cushion. Uh, if, if, as we look at sort of your portfolio of current or past like clients, can you um, can you think of uh, any sort of failures that resulted in a pivot or just the company they just went be. under? Can you kind of guide us through maybe one? Use case where you were brought in to take a look at something that was just a flop. I I, I won't mention the specific names, uh, but I, I was working with the one of let's say one of the largest cosmetic companies in the world, and it had an amazing story behind it. It was started by an immigrant uh, who who developed a. Um, uh, a press with which to uh, to uh, compact makeup, uh, and the press actually used the car jack. Uh, oh, yeah. That was the way the company started. Oh, it started with with a car yeah. jack being used yeah. to to compact makeup, and it built this enormous empire, of incredible products, and, and great innovations. And uh, and he brought us in because he wanted to create a culture of innovation. Oh no! And I actually got the yeah. call from him uh, midnight on December thirty first, saying, "Could you get out here, please? We need someone to help us build a culture of innovation." Sure. And I said, uh, "We'll we'll we'll give him a." Name Joe, I said. I said Joe, I'd, I'd love to, but you know it's New Year's Eve. Could this wait a little while? He goes as soon as you can. You know, get out here. And I went out and I talked to sixty people, interviewed sixty different people uh, with my colleagues uh, across the entire organization. And everyone to a T said to me, you know what? Joe was an incredible human being. He paid for my daughter's schooling. Mm. He bought me my first house. He did this. He did that. They loved him like a father. And uh, and it finally dawned on me, no one's innovating here because at the end of the day, they don't want to step on Joe's toes. Oh. They know Joe is the innovator, oh. uh, and it was it was an incredible insight. And it, it, we'll get deeper into the story though, because that's not the whole story. An incredible insight into how you can really screw up a company by not giving people license to innovate, by taking it away from them, and not explicitly saying I don't want you to innovate. Because he was saying to them, I want you to be innovators, but out of respect, they wanted to let him do the innovation. Why didn't that happen happen at Apple with Steve Jobs? Well, I, so I think it did happen to a large degree at Apple with Steve Jobs. I think Steve Jobs was the kind of individual who had both license from his board when he came back, obviously, to do whatever the hell he wanted, uh, and the vision to be able to execute on on that. Jobs was a rare breed. By right, any, but, but, but the others in the company were, must have been innovating beneath him or of course they were. Him. Of course they yeah. were. Uh, but ultimately, Jobs was the narrow end of the funnel. Everything came, okay. everything came through, through oh, Jobs really? at the end of the day. We should ask whoever's doing this um, announcement in the background to be a guest. <laughs> <laughs> because it probably I'm sounds like I'm not sure like if our that. listeners can hear it, but maybe, okay, they maybe with can. the ultra-sensitive okay, broadcast. So let's, get back, let's get back to the yeah. cosmetics company. Yeah, so, yeah. I, I, so I went to Joe and I said, you know, here's the report. You know, it was, a, it was a very elaborate report. We detailed it very specifically. We said, look, you have to step aside if you really want this to happen. Yeah. And he really wanted it to happen. You know what Joe's response 
was? Screw them. You're fired. <laughs> Interesting. That was Joe's response. Okay. In a very friendly way. Yeah, yeah. But you're fired was Joe's so response. So, so, which is why I say, you know, trying to create a culture of innovation yeah. is, is an almost impossible thing to do. You know, mm. you have to, as a startup, one of the great gifts you are given is to build culture from the outset. That yeah. is the ultimate benefit of a startup is that you can create that culture on a blank slate. Uh, and you should be conscious of the fact that you, you've been given that license. I think far too many founders are not conscious of that. They allow the culture to evolve or they don't realize the influence they're having over the evolution of that culture. And they inadvertently create a culture that unfortunately does not serve. Well, I'm assuming that most startups have an innovative culture. Um, I'm just assuming well, most, at least more. Most founders have an innovative okay. culture, perhaps, How about startups? Is, is the way to put it. I'm not sure the startup does. And a lot, really? a lot, a lot of. Uh, look, I don't have data on yeah, which yeah. to substantiate this, but from what I've seen, a lot of startups have such powerful personalities in, in the founder or founders oh, that innovation really? is, is effectively commandeered by oh, them. Interesting. And this goes back to could be. this goes back to you know what you folks are trying to talk about here. You have to give license to fail. If you don't, this is like having kids. If you don't let your kid fail, you know at some point they're going to have a failure that's much too big for them to recover from because they don't know how to recover from failure. Hmm. So you do the same thing with the organization. Give it license to fail. Allow those failures to happen, even while you're watching them happen, which is a painful thing to do. Because in doing that, you create a culture that does have the resiliency that Mark was talking about. And ultimately, I think Jobs did that at Apple. The resiliency to innovate. To innovate and right. to, to, to innovate after failure. Yeah, it's, right. it's the resilience right. is about recovery from failure in this in this particular setting. Right. Mm. And and give or you know again uh, give yourself permission to you know uh, take the failure and and you know dust yourself off and keep moving. So that's interesting. So you postulate that startups are not as innovative. They're certainly hardworking. At least we gather Absolutely, they're hardworking. Absolutely, of course. You have but to you're saying they may not be innovative above and beyond the initial CTO or CEO, whoever that, it is. I think that's fundamentally the, the first well, wall you hit as a startup is, is, is who do I hand off this innovation to? I, I, you're never going to scale one person. It's not going to happen. Well, I guess the I guess the question is if you're starting a startup and you've come up with a great idea for a new one, I'm going to pick up your, your Zoom H4n yeah. Pro, and you said, I've got a great idea for a four-channel or a two-channel recorder that can also be a four-channel recorder. Um, and I think this is a genius idea, and I'm going to hire a COO to help build it. I'm going to hire a CFO and so, and so on and so all forth. All the C's and, and all, all the, the C's O's. and all the O's and all the worker B's. And I guess you'd be upset if, if you hired the new, not janitor, but the hired the, the, the kid to assemb do assembly, and he came in and said, hey, I think that we could make a five-channel by doing X. So he no, no. Stay in your swim lane. Your your job is to assemble the damn mm -hmm. thing. Is that what you're getting at? Absolutely, what I'm getting at. And Ooh. look, it's a but it's a judgment. This call. Sounds like a non. This sounds like you're fighting motherhood and apple pie when you say that. But it sounds like a good observation. Well, you know what? The reason that every startup isn't successful, or the vast majority of them are not, is because of what we're talking about here. This is, this is a judgment call, and there's no playbook by which you can um, you can replicate the right decision time in time out. So should that you know, young whippersnapper be given license to add a fifth channel or not? Yeah. Uh, there's no right or wrong there answer. There is to that. none, right. And the flip side is if he spend, he or she spends all their time putting a fifth and a sixth and a seventh channel in, we may not got product out. A absolutely. So I can tell you from my experience in, in, in building my own organizations, uh, a big piece of what you have to do is identify the individuals to whom you are going to grant that license. Yeah. Uh, that is part of the responsibility of the CEO is to figure out who the, And sometimes you bet well, sometimes you don't. But you know what? Good CEOs 
mostly bet pretty well on that. They, they figure out who those folks are, and they give them, you know, Johnny Ives at, yeah. at Apple. Johnny Ives had enormous license to do yeah. what he needed to do. He earned that respect from Steve Jobs, but Jobs granted that to yeah. him. I think that's part of what every startup CEO needs to look at is how do I, you know, he or she needs to look at how do I figure out who those folks are. And when you give them license, and this is the key, give them the damn license. Don't grab the steering wheel halfway through it. You know, give them the ability, you know, see, see how they deal with failure. See how yep. they recover from it. How did you do that, Mark, at uh, AirPrint? Well, we we were sort of stillborn, if you really think about it. Ooh. So that's uh, like a nasty. Yeah, thought. we're gonna have to get yeah. out of here. There's They're turning the lights off. Fire honestly. fire engine downstairs. Well, the, our, the failure will be when the tape. We don't have so, tape anymore, but that's so uh, refer to refer yeah. to episode one for my answer. <laughs> 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 we have to go. Are you serious? Yeah, there's, that's why. Yeah, there's well, a fire engine let's downstairs. bring this to a close. Thank you, Tom. That was excellent. I think. You, Tom has schooled us in failure, yes. which is good, which is why we're here. Well, it was a learning experience for me as well, gentlemen, so thank, thank you very thank much. Thank you.